It's good to see you guys again. Uh, my name is, is Court Marley, and I was here. Sorry, they're going to try to get this worked out. It's been my unique voice is, uh, is ruining this. I guess my wife says I have a unique voice. One of my wife's best friends said I have a unique face. I don't know how to take that. I feel like a unique voice is okay, but when you have a unique face, that's a kind way of saying not good looking. Um, so I don't really know how to take it. But um, if, if you don't know me, my name is Court Marley, and uh, I was here last week. I am not the lead pastor of C3 Magnolia. Uh, his name is Casey Cease, and, and he's on a sabbatical. He's had a few weeks off, and so he's a friend of mine, a good friend who's asked me to come in, and, and, uh, and we've been kind of walking through a two-part series. Last week, it, we started it, and it's called uh, Gripped by Grace, uh, and it's following the life of Peter um, from the beginning when he was called to be a disciple to uh, just before Jesus' ascension uh, when he's met by Jesus on the shore in a similar way. And so um, two weeks ago, or, or a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bryant Lee, Pastor Bryant Lee from Higher Expectation Church, was able to join with you guys, and kind of, he, he preached a sermon called The Missionary God. Um, and in a very eloquent way, and only Bryant Lee fashion that he can do, he kind of walked from Genesis to Revelation about how God is on a mission, and his mission is to redeem uh, his people. And that from the beginning of the Bible to the end, it's really just a big redemption story that he's calling us into to join him. Uh, on his mission of redemption. And so last week, what, what I tried to do was, was ask the question, uh, as I was listening to Bryant's sermon, I was asking myself, what keeps me, what hinders me um, in my pursuit or, or, or in my submission, really, to God calling me to join him on his missionary journey? Or in short, what keeps me from wanting to be a missionary in my own daily life? Um, and, and so last week, uh, we said that the greatest messengers of grace are those who have been greatly marked by grace. And that ultimately what, what is going to keep us from being a messenger of the grace of the gospel is if we lose the wonder of the grace of the gospel personally. If we lose the wonder of what it means for God to extend grace to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, if we lose that wonder, that awe, that, that thankfulness, that what, what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, their first love that caused them to throw all idols at, at Jesus' feet, if we lose that, then, then we obviously lose the fuel for mission, um, the, the, the delight in God is, our, is really the greatest motivator to be a missionary. And so we talked a little bit about Peter, and, and what I want to do is, is go on the back end of that um, and discuss a little bit more about the, the nature of grace. So if last week was the narrative of grace, how grace, how grace way, weaves its way into our lives and shapes our story. I told you guys a little bit of my story last week. If you didn't listen to it, you can podcast it. It's a little bit of my own shame. Uh, and uh, uh, some of it's kind of comical um, about, about my story, how I came into Christ. Um, so if last week was about how God weaves his way into our story, and that means each and every one of you who are sitting here this morning, I want this morning to be about the nature of grace. How does grace function beyond salvation? So beyond being justified by grace, how does the grace of God actively function in your life today? Or does it? Uh, and I would contend that it does. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter number 21 is where we're going to be. John chapter number 21. And we're going to start in verse 1. If you do not own a Bible, I, I saw on some of the seats, there are some hardback copies around you. So listen, if you're sitting right now and there's a hardback copy, I want to say it's about a 98% sure that's not somebody else's seat and you're not going to be snaking somebody else's Bible, okay? So just grab that thing. If somebody does come up to you, that's your own fault, okay? You took your own risk. Um, give them their Bible back, okay? You stole in church and you got to deal with God about that, okay? So grab your Bible or grab a Bible that's next to you and take the risk. 
And if you wouldn't mind standing to your feet, if you are able, as we read God's Word. Starting in verse 1 in John chapter number 21. The Scripture should also be projected behind me if you, if you don't have a Bible in your hands. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that you love us. We're so grateful that we get to sing that though our sins are many, your mercy is more than that. Greater than that. It extends beyond what we could ever fathom or imagine. Your love was great enough to bridge the chasm that stood between us and you through the body and death of your son Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're present with us this morning, active and working to open the eyes of our hearts to, to hear your voice this morning through your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would incline us to be convicted and comforted simultaneously by your truth. I pray that you would help us to lean into you, run towards you and not away, my God. Give us that inclination that's not natural, but supernatural. And this morning, I pray that we might leave here 
and the sun would be a little brighter, that we would feel the peace of the Lord that surpasses understanding. It's my prayer, my God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this text, we, if, you have, if you didn't catch it, or maybe if you weren't here last week, this, this is kind of a deja vu moment for Peter, right? It's, kind of, it's, it's very similar to what we talked about last week. And if for some of you, uh, if you're not familiar with the narrative, you might have been thinking, I'm just reading the same story over again. Uh, last week, we talked about when Peter was called first by Jesus, when he first meets Jesus. Jesus is preaching on the shores of a, a body of water, which we'll get to a sec, in a second, and the people are closing in on him. So, so Jesus asks Peter, can we get in your boat and push off a little bit from the land, and so then I can preach from there. Peter accepts this as an honor, and then they go on to, to go fish, and, and they haven't caught anything all night long, Peter being a fisherman by trade, and Jesus tells him, why don't you cast the nets here? And, and Peter, kind of uh, placating to Jesus, the rabbi, decides to let the nets down, and lo and behold, the nets are so full that his boat begins to sink. He calls his buddy John and James, and they put the fish more fish into his boat, and both boats begin to sink. And Peter's, at that moment, eyes are open. And the revelation of the Son of God being in the boat with him overwhelms him so that he says, depart from me, Jesus. I'm a man. I'm a sinful man. And, and, and Jesus has that moment of grace where he extends to Peter not just that, that forgiveness that his presence offers, but also that commissioning by saying, come, you're, you're going to now be a fisher of men. Now, now fast forward, and this morning we get, uh, this is three and a half years later, roughly, that Jesus and Peter have not just been uh, friends, or dis- discipleship relationship. They've been friends. They've lived together. They've done ministry together. Peter has seen not just Jesus heal people, but raise them from the dead. And not just raise them from the dead, but he's seen Jesus heal his own stepmother. Not only that, but he's seen Jesus crucified and resurrected. We get in this text that, that Peter has already seen the risen Lord. And so they've lived together for this long, and they've, he's seen all these miraculous things. He knows who Jesus is. And yet after the resurrection of Jesus, what we find is, is Peter once again struggling to go back to his old occupation. And, and, and there's a really unique moment, and most of us know this if you, if you maybe have seen Passion of the Christ or you just kind of know the gospel story at all, then you know more than likely that Peter had a moment in between that beginning and end of the three and a half years that was very formative, namely when he denies Jesus three times, right? Pretty famous portion of Scripture. It's where... Peter comes to Jesus right before he is about to be crucified. Jesus reveals to Peter and the disciples, I'm going to die soon. And where I'm going, you cannot come, meaning heaven. And, and he says, I'm, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And Peter says, never, it's not going to be so. I will die before I let you die, Jesus. And Jesus' response to Peter is, no, you, not only will you not go with me to the cross and die, but this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter's offended by this, upset about this, as many of us probably would be, but you guys know the story. It continues on, and he actually does carry through and deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And it says in the book of Luke that as he denies him the third time, the rooster crows, he turns, and he sees Jesus' eyes, and they meet eyes. And at that moment, he, is, he goes away and weeps bitterly. So we catch Peter right after this. You can imagine, that was before Jesus' death. Now Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. Peter knows that he is alive. And now he's going to meet up with Jesus on the seashore. This is kind of one of those meetings um, that you're not necessarily looking forward to, you know? Like, have you ever had that pit in your stomach or you're going to go to work or something? You know, you're going to have, like your boss tells you, hey, meeting on Monday morning, we really need to talk. 
like, ugh, all weekend's awful, isn't it? Like, why would you tell me that? Like, how many of you go, let's meet now. Just go ahead and get this out of the way. No, no, M- Monday morning, first thing. It's, we really need to talk. Uh-oh. Peter has this meeting with Jesus, right? Like, they haven't really had a one-on-one. Like, he's seen Jesus with the other disciples. Like, kind of Thomas got the brunt of it at one point. Like, Thomas, you know, and, and, Peter, and Jesus have that moment where Jesus walks into the upper room and Thomas is the one who said, I won't believe unless I touch his wrist and touch his side. And, and, and Jesus goes, hey, where's Thomas? Peter's in the corner hiding. It's over there. It's over there, Jesus. I heard him too. Heard what he said. He has that interaction. He said, hey, hey Thomas, touch my wrist. Touch my side. What does Thomas do? Falls on his knees. My Lord and my God. Jesus extends grace. So it was, it was okay for Peter maybe for a moment, but now him and Thomas are reconciled. So he's like, dang it. I'm on the chopping block now, you know? I love what happens here in, 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 in these early verses because Peter says to the other disciples, I am going fishing. Many commentators say that this is not just simply a, a, a quiet, quaint Sunday afternoon stroll for a country boy like Peter to go fishing. This is a change of occupation. He was a fisherman. He became a disciple who was going to go be a fisher of men. And he's telling the disciples, I'm done with this. I'm going back to fishing. He's resorting back to who he was, his old man. And the other disciples say, we're going to go with you. They join him, not necessarily to join in his occupation, but to be his brothers, to be with them in his time of distress. This morning, I want to ask the question, how many of us, even after we have come to know Christ, after we have been, Jesus' glory has been revealed to us in a, a powerful way, a real way. I'm talking a, an not just the truth about Jesus, that we've ascended to that understanding, where we could sign a statement of faith that says, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. But I'm talking an experiential moment where we realize the Son of God is amongst us. That even after that moment that you were changed, you know, Summer Camp 98, you still got the shirt. It's got mustard stains on it. You know, you just keep that. It's like framed in your house or something. But even still after that, you've had moments where not only that you sinned ignorantly, but you sinned willfully. You made decisions that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt would dishonor God. You knew it would, it would break your communion, your relationship with God, and yet you did. You maybe even were forewarned by counsel that you shouldn't do this, and you did. And so, so now, each and every day, maybe currently, or you have had a season where you just got this cloud that follows you. You've experienced grace, but each and every day you're underneath the power of the law that continues to remind you of your sin. I want to tell you this morning that grace is not just there as a jump start to your life, a jump start to your spiritual life, but as your constant daily digestion of spiritual food. Point number one is this grace continues. Very simple. Grace continues. Here we see maybe some of the guilt of Peter is getting the best of him. It's not fair to say that Peter's lost his faith, but it is safe to say that he feels disqualified from being a fisher of men. It's safe to say that he said, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he thought I could be a fisher of men then, but I am just a fisherman. That's all I am. I've denied Jesus three times. I did it openly. I did it to the servants of the high priest. I even did it to a little girl who scared me around a fire. 
See, Peter needs a powerful revelation of who Jesus Christ is again. He needs to be reminded that Jesus is enough. And friends, we need that reminder too. It's not enough for us to just have a one-time revelation of who Jesus is and hope that that extends us beyond all the way to eternity, all the way to the gates. No, we need a constant daily revelation of the person and the work of Christ. We need to be reminded that He's enough on a daily basis. Why? Because we all sin. We will fall short. If you're in the room this morning, you say, nope, not me. Give it time, friend. Or you're just prideful, you may never see it. Or if you're single, get married. Then you'll mess up big, all right? When we do, we cannot rely on past experiences with the grace of God to sustain us, but we need new mercies every morning. Behind me, uh, they're going to toss up lamentations. Chapter number 3, and, and you guys don't have to turn there. I'll just read it off. This is from Jeremiah the prophet. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Friends, we need the mercies of God new every morning. And unless we experience that, not just cognitively, but in our hearts experience the grace of God every morning, then I would, I would venture to say that we will live beneath a cloud, never really fulfilling what Christ has commissioned us to do because we, like Peter, constantly feel disqualified. If you turn with me to the book of Galatians, you can keep your thumb in John, but Galatians chapter number 3. This is a, a letter from Paul. And, 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 and Paul writes this letter. And if we ever needed an example of a man who had experienced grace, powerfully. Paul's the guy, right? So like he's a murderer of Christians on the road to Damascus, meets Jesus in person and face to face. Like that already trumps my testimony. No matter how cool yours is, it probably trumps yours too, right? And Paul writes this letter to the Galatians who, who he has preached the gospel to this, this church, this body of believers, and they have come to know the grace of God powerfully, and yet they had had a turn away from the grace of God to something else. Let's read Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, O foolish Galatians! Kind of a harsh way to start. You guys notice I didn't start my sermon that way with you guys. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. If you're a parent in the room, or, or maybe you, you can remember your parents doing this, when your mom says something like, let me ask you one question. Friend, don't answer that question. All right? Just, it's rhetorical. It's not meant for you to answer. Okay? Paul says, let me ask you just this one question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith. Rhetorical. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Now don't interject your mom and say, that's two questions. <laughs> Just keep going. Let it happen, okay? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Oh, okay, it's the same question, just said a different way. Paul's question is this. How did you begin this race with Jesus? Did you begin on your own horsepower? Did you begin on your own volition? Did you begin on your own works? Or did you begin by the hearing of faith? Did you begin by the power of your flesh? Or was it the grace of the Spirit? The answer is grace is how this race began. 
So then the next question is this, then why are you continuing and thinking that now that grace has been extended to me, now Jesus, I can handle this, I can handle my walk alone, and now you're trying to be perfected by the works of the flesh. You see, Paul feels so strongly about this idea that grace continues and that it must continue for us to have spiritual life that he calls anything other than that teaching witchcraft. He says, you've been bewitched. And that's not a cute Will Ferrell movie. That's witchcraft, is what he's saying. It's as though the spell of the world has been cast over the Galatians and they have forgotten that how we are saved is how we are sanctified. They're married together, friends. You can't disconnect them. And now we bring back to Peter. Jesus loves Peter too much and therefore he cannot allow Peter to fall prey to this kind of witchcraft. If you're taking down some notes, ponder this for a second. Growing in grace does not include outgrowing your need for it. Growing in grace does not include outgrowing your need for it. How many of you in home group, you're thinking, when I can, I'll know I'm growing in Christ when I don't have to confess the same sin over and over in home group. Like, I'll know I'm growing in grace when I start saying less and less in home group about my own sin, and I get to be the counselor, like the spiritual Yoda in the home group, you know? Like the one who comes in and someone else confesses and you come in to heal them. Like, oh, brother, let me tell you the gospel. Let me tell you this Spurgeon quote that changed my life. And that's when you think you're going to start growing is whenever you become papa or mama bear in the home group and you don't have to actually be the one who's, who's confessing all of your junk and looking kind of messed up. But, but the, actually the gospel is the exact opposite, that as we grow in grace, we start to realize our need for it. It means uncovering a fresh need of grace day by day. We grow in grace by realizing we need it much more than we did when we began. And as grace begins to extend to you, then that grace begins to heal you. Lastly, the purpose of daily prayer is more than just petition, but it's about position. And I don't want to get too charismatic on you, but we need to be reminded of our position in Christ before we start every day petitioning God for things. So there's, there's nothing wrong with petitioning God for things, and I think it's a delight. And you can see God's character move when God answers prayers. However, if all we do is petition God for things, but we never ask Him to help us to realize our position in Him, then each and every day we are going out without any spiritual food that roots us and grounds us in such a way that we don't have to prove ourselves to anyone because we already know who we are in Christ. We don't have to act a certain way or not act a certain way. We don't have to live up to a standard because Christ has already paid and made that standard for us. Now we can lean into who we are in Him rather than trying to prove who we are to other people. See, daily prayer should also be about, God, remind me who I am in You. Our primary identity first is son and daughter of the Lord, and then all the rest will flow from that. So number one is grace continues. Number two, grace confronts. Okay, I'm just going to be totally honest. There's, there's a little bit of a, a sharper side to this, and, and we've got to kind of catch this because I believe it's, it's love from Jesus in this text. Starting in verse number six. 
Jesus comes up to the shore. He looks to Peter and them in the boat and asks them, have you caught anything? And the answer is, of course, no. I love that it's just simply no. It's not like an explanation. It's just like, no. It's been a rough night. And then in verse 6, Jesus says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. They cast it, and they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity. And the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Okay, at this moment, Peter has eyes have been closed. He doesn't know it's Jesus they're talking to. But once they pull in the, the fish, he is reminded back to when Jesus called him on the shores of Galilee before. What I love about this text is verse 1 tells us it's the, the Sea of Tiberias that they're in. And I was like, Man, Jesus, this would have been way cooler if you had done it in the Sea of Galilee because that's when you first called him. Guess what? I looked it up. They're the same place. So it turns out it works out, right? Just name two different things. This is the exact same spot that Peter was in when he was called by Jesus. And John recognizes it before Peter does. Now, now, without spending too much time here, I think what this does tell us is community is so important because sometimes you need someone else to tell you, hey, I see Jesus working in your life when you're too blinded to see it. John, the one whom Jesus loved, I love that John calls himself that. He's the writer of this book. Does anybody else find that like a little self-serving? It's like in the disciple that Jesus loved the most. Said, he recognized him first, by the way. Said, it's the Lord. I love that. Turns to Peter. It's the Lord. I, I also love Peter's response because it's, it's almost kind of goofy. He's naked working, right, basically. And so he realizes it's the Lord, and he's like, this is shameful. Throws his coat on and just jumps in the water. The rest of the disciples, it says it's only about 100 yards off. They're just kind of like, and they like beat Peter to the shore. Like, and Peter comes like huffing. You know, I just, I love this story. The law condemns us when we are wrong. We're left to ourselves to stew in shame. Grace presses and nudges our hearts. Grace wants to get to the rock bottom root of our sinful hearts. You see, Peter was stewing in his shame. And that's what the law does for us, right? All it can do is diagnose. The law is like an x-ray machine. It tells you there's a break, but it has no ability to heal. Think of the law like you get into the MRI and it shows you where the tears are, but, it, but it's not a physician. It can't go in there and then fix what is wrong. And so you're literally just laying there injured. You have more information about the injury, but it doesn't change the pain. You know what happened and why it happened, but you don't know how to fix it. This is Peter. He knows that he has denied the Lord three times. He's stewing in that, but grace pursues. The great physician comes to you not only to tell you and show you what has happened, but to heal. You see, the definition of grace is not just that God sees us in our sin, although that's true but that He sees us just as we are and then He welcomes us on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. That's grace. See, that's much different, isn't it? Like many of you this morning, you may be here and um, I mentioned it last week. I wrote a book on social media and the reason I wrote this book was because um, my, my church or Providence Community Church where I pastor, uh, I recognized that there was like a disconnect between the way that people engaged with me on an everyday basis and the way they engaged online. Anybody else notice that? Like some of the quietest people in the world are very boisterous online. I was just very shocked. Some of the people I didn't think had political opinions, turns out they do. Uh, some people that can be the most jovial and fun, turns out they're a little bitter, all right, about life. 
And, and, and so I said, you know, I think I feel like we need to not allow people's discipleship to be compartmentalized. We got to bring the gospel to bear weight. And one of the things I talk about in the book is how social media allows us to create online projections of ourselves that we want other people to think are true about us. Like they are the mirror that we make. So like when we look into the mirror, we see ourselves for how we are. But when we have a social media online profile, we can create projections of how we want to be. It's how we want to be accepted. It's how we want to be expected. I'll I'll read you guys a couple of little quotes from it. Um, Before too long, these projections that we create can represent a great deal of our identity. And our self-love can hit narcissist-level importance to us as we check our projections moment by moment to see if others have heaped as much praise our way as we feel is due to us. Those are called likes. We long for likes. We long for favorites, comments, retweets, because they further the story we've been telling ourselves. They assure us that others think our projections are as beautiful as we think they are. I, I use the example of, if you don't know the Greek mythology, the, the, the man Narcissus, which is where we get the word narcissism from, and how he ends up dying because he sits by a pool looking at himself in, in this pool of reflection, and he loves himself so much that he dies there, just staring at himself in the pool. And I said this, perhaps it's more than coincidental that Narcissus died pe- peering into the dimly lit reflection pool, and we are slowly dying as we do the same. A light glow on our faces at the bus stop, the grocery store, the dining room table, church, the coffee shop, and our living rooms every day reveals the narcissism that lives in us all. Do you know why many of us find ourselves at the dining room table ignoring our family to look in the dimly lit phone? It's because we are obsessed with the projections that we've created. Now the real question is why do we create them? Why do we want to create a projection that's not quite us? But it's the best version of us, you know, because you know your friends will call you out if you just total, put a totally different picture of yourself, right? It's like if I just put Brad Pitt up on my profile picture and said, hey, I'm Court Marley, my, my friends are going to go, eh, or just make fun of me. But I can put my best pictures up, right? So like the ones at the right angle. Ladies, you know this, all right? You've taken classes on this. It's called like how you take the right selfie. The shadows have to be right. The filters have to be correct. Our best representations of ourselves. Why do we do that? The reason we do that is because we believe at the root of who we are that people are going to love more this future version of ourselves, of who we're, who we're going to be one day. That maybe even God loves a future version of ourselves when we're more patient, more gentle, more loving, more kind. That's who He's going to love. When I become more sanctified, that's the one that God's going to love. So we create these projections and we want to project that at home group and when we're at church and when we're around other people because we want them to love that version of ourselves. And online is just another outlet for that. But in reality, grace is not that God loves some future version of you, but that He loves you just as you are, as you are right now today. How do we know that from this text? Peter is naked on the boat and Jesus pursues him. What's Peter's first reaction? Put clothes on. When we think of our own sin, when we think of our own shame, we think the Lord's going to try to come in and the Lord is going to begin talking to you about this sin. What's your first? Guard that sin. Hide that sin. Cover that shame. When Adam and Eve are walking in the garden and they eat of the fruit they ought not eat, what's the first thing they do? Fig leaves. Hide their shame. The good news is not only that God sees us and sees past our outer garments, but that He loves us and extends grace to us in that sin. The book of Romans says it like this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
not that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the future version of us that would be good and better later. No, He extended grace to us where we were. This is true freedom. True freedom is knowing that God doesn't love a future version of you, but He loves you now, right where you stand. Flaws, imperfections, and yes, I'll say it, sin. But, Jesus loves you far too much to allow you to stay exactly as you are. So even though Jesus loves you just as you are, He loves you far too much than to allow you to stay there. And so what does grace do? Grace confronts. So notice what has happened here. Jesus has recreated Peter's triumphant moment, right? The moment that, that Peter was called to be a fisher of men. He's, he's got Jesus, he's got, Jesus has Peter on the seashore. He's got him out in the boat. He's got him with no fish in his boat. He tells him, now cast your nets. They pull the nets in and it's too many for them to count. Pulls up, they, they, they realize that it's the Lord and they're about to come onto the shore. The Scripture says this is now a time where Jesus is going to begin to confront Peter about his sin. And so here's what the Scriptures begin to tell us. Number one, in verse 14 it says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. Third time. In a moment, Jesus is about to ask Peter three questions. We know that this gets cuts right to the heart of Peter because it says it grieves him. And lastly, a very minute detail that I'll just give you for free because I found it in the, in the narrative of the commentaries, is that Jesus has a charcoal fireplace set up, which would mean nothing to us, and it seems like not really a big deal, except for the fact that the only other time that you see a charcoal fireplace in the entirety of the New Testament narratives is when Peter is warming himself beside the servants and denies Jesus three times at a charcoal fireplace. So Jesus is ruthlessly about to recreate this narrative where Peter thinks that maybe he's going to get off with just a free breakfast from Jesus at IHOP. Each of these recreations are not circumstantial or coincidental. They are purposed moments for Peter. He's faced with the same decision that Jesus intends to propose to us. Are we content to warm ourselves by the fires of the world or will we stand on the shores of grace with our Savior? That's what he intends to propose to Peter and to us. You see, the gospel of grace confronts us with this question. It doesn't ignore our sinful tendencies toward inward and outward comfort idolatry, but the grace of God confronts us. Later in this text, Jesus will describe to Peter his martyr's death. Listen to me, friends. I, even though I can say that grace confronts us and loves us just as we are, I have to be fair also to say that when grace is extended to you, it is not promised that we will be comfortable. We know this because later on in this text, Jesus is going to tell Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. Peter does what many of us would do, and he says, but what about John? Sounds like a legit question. Jesus' response is, what is it to you if I let him live forever until I come again. You follow me. The promise of grace is not comfort, but it's peace with God. The promise of grace is reconciliation with the Father. The promise of grace is communion with the Son of God by the power of the Spirit. Now, when the Holy Spirit of grace begins to confront, it begins to convict, we must not mistake this for God's judgment on our lives. Don't mistake conviction for judgment. 
The Spirit's conviction is a gift of God's grace on us. You see, it would be the wrath of God to allow us to continue unchecked in our sins and never convict us at all because there's a trajectory and a path that we are on. And if God our Father were to allow us to continue unchecked down that path, that would be the ultimate negligence and hate toward us. But instead, He sends the Holy Spirit to convict so that we might be checked in our sin and find life. Parents, you all know this at a base level in your heart. You don't let your children run in the street without checking them. You don't let your children run towards a pool if they can't swim without grabbing them. Maybe even chastising and disciplining them so they have a healthy fear of the water until they can swim. You see, when we get confronted by grace, we must not feel that it's judgment, but respond with repentance and faith. Okay, last point. If grace continues and grace confronts, lastly in this text, grace commissions. Grace empowers the believer beyond our sin to be ambassadors for the love of God. The loved by God will be lovers of God. This is that portion of the story here where Jesus begins to talk with Peter. And as he's confronting him, he says, do you love me more than these, Peter? And you hear in Peter's tone, you know that I love you, Lord. Jesus continues eating and asks him again, do you love me, Peter? You know that I love you, Lord. A third time, it says that Peter's grieved to the heart. You know everything, Lord, and you know that I love you. Each time, Jesus' response is not simply to say you're forgiven, but to say you're commissioned. What does he say? Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, care for my sheep. He's telling Peter, if you know that you love me, then you must first know that I love you. And if I love you, I will be with you. Now you have to go do what I said. Be a fisher of men. You're not a fisherman anymore. You're not a fisherman anymore. You see, many times if grace does not continue, if we don't allow grace to confront us, then we will resort back to the old man and we will live in our old identity of who we were. See, many of us think that if we, if we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, if we can just stop looking at whatever we've been looking at, if we can stop saying whatever we've been saying, if we can stop being angry at our spouse, then finally we can get on with the business of gospel ministry. But no, no, Jesus says, if you will but come to me, if you will but come to me, receive the love that I've extended, abide in me, you'll be a tender of my sheep, you'll be a tender of my lambs. You see, grace has a way of silencing the accuser's, the accuser's words, not by refuting them as untruth, but by revealing them as half-truths. <laughs> so here's what, here's what Satan says, right? Um, you're a sinner. You are not worthy to be a messenger of the gospel because you can't even keep your life together. Anybody ever heard that in one way, shape, or form? You're a sinner. Look at you. You can't keep it together for one day, and you're supposed to be someone carrying the gospel message? Unworthy. See, grace doesn't completely refute that. It just, it just highlights it as a half-truth. Here's what grace says. You're a sinner. See, many of us, we got that backwards. We just think grace says, no, you're not a sinner. You're a snowflake. You're a bit of all right. You're okay. You're perfect. You're unique. You're just you. It's just imperfections. Everybody's different, you know? And your difference is that you're a jerk. But you know what? God loves jerks. See, that's that, that, that cheap, greasy grace. No, no. Real costly cross 
absorbing grace is this. You are a sinner. A little shocking. However, thanks be to God that He saved sinners like you and me. You can't keep your life together. Thanks be to God that He keeps lives like yours and mine together. You can't keep it together for one day apart from the God of grace who not only has bought you with a price, but sent His Spirit to live in you. Not only that, not only has He saved you, not only is He sanctifying you, but He has sent you. God is in the business of using sinners to become His sent ones in the world. You see, grace reminds you of the half-truths of the enemy and, and highlights them for what they are. The original sin was acted on because of a half-truth. And so here we see Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? And I, and I, and I think I find this, uh, this correlation with a parable that Jesus tells earlier in His ministry. He's talking with Peter and James and some of the Pharisees, and He says the Pharisees are around. You know, the Pharisees always got mad at Jesus because He hung out with kind of a, an unseemly crowd. You know, little upset Jesus with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunkards. And, and so he's got a bunch of tax collectors, prostitutes, and drunkards around. He's got some Pharisees. And Jesus does this in such a quaint way. He turns to Peter and says, Peter, i got a question for you. He says, Peter, if, if there were two people, one came to me and he had a debt that, that he owed me. And it was very small. And I forgave of him that debt. And then I had another person come to me and they had a great debt. And I forgave them of that great debt. Which one do you think would be more loving toward me? Which one do you think would be more appreciative? And Peter says, Lord, the one whom you forgave the bigger debt. Jesus says, you're right. And he turns to the Pharisees and he says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And he who has been forgiven little, loves little. That's just a straight shot at the Pharisees, right? Well, little, little did Peter know later in his life that Jesus was going to turn it on him again and say, you think you did the worst thing? You denied me on the night of my crucifixion? The worst possible sin, right? Like many commentators put Judas and Peter kind of up in, in similar arms, right? Similar things. And Jesus looks at him and says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. The single greatest motivator to share the Gospel is to find it personally precious to you. The single greatest motivator for you to ever share your faith is for you to find it so precious to you that nothing else compares to it. And the only way for that to happen is for you to know that you've been forgiven much. You see, Jesus wasn't giving the Pharisees a pass by saying, hey, you really don't have to love me that much because there's not much I have to forgive you for. He wanted to highlight to the Pharisees, when you know the depths of your sin, you'll love the greatness of your Savior. Because when grace is precious to you, you cannot help but share it. So, so here, here's kind of where, where I want to close. Um, I told you guys a few stories about, um, about my son Jonas. and um, He is a... He's great. Um, we have a ton of fun together and uh, he, he, he does this thing where whenever I, I want to play with him, he always wants to pick a fight with me. Like he cuddles with my mom, with my wife, his mom. Uh, but for me, he, he, he kind of wants to pick a fight. So he'll like run up to me and he'll like hit me and then he'll be like, backs away and then he'll like hit me. And so I'll, I'll do this weird thing, forgive me, but I'm, I'm going to get you. Daddy's going to get you. And he, ah, and then runs away. Um, the only problem with that is whenever I'm serious, uh, he does this thing where he, he kind of walks like this. And, and he opens his eyes real big and he starts to like backpedal from me. 
when I really want to talk to them, when I really want to, to, to engage with them. And so when, when I want to give him something good or if I want to discipline him, Jonas has this way of like backing up. And many times what he'll do because he's an uncoordinated toddler is he'll just like back his head right into something. So like he's a typical toddler. His head is about three times the size of every other body part. So like when he wants to run fast, he just, just lean the head forward, you know? And uh, he, so he backs up a few times. And one time he, he's backing up fast, fast, fast. and just hits his head, bam, knocks it right into the counter. And boom. And, and usually he just kind of laughs about that. This time you knew it was bad. It was, it was one of those like pause cries, you know what I'm talking about? Where they don't fully cry for like 60 seconds because they're not right, quite breathing yet. And then it comes in and it's just like, you know, rending the house down. Uh, and, and I try to work with him on this because... I, I, want, I want him to not, if something bad happens, like when Jonas knows he's getting in trouble, he, he, he backs away from me. But I want him to know, hey, it's time to come to me. I'm serious. I want to, I want to fix this. This morning, I, I pray for many of us. I began this, this, this series thinking that this would be able to diagnose some of the reasons behind our stagnancy in mission. But maybe it's more than that for you this morning. Like, like maybe this morning the Holy Spirit's confronting you on some issues. Like maybe he's confronting you on some sin issues that, that, that have kind of been hidden. Like you, like Peter, are trying to kind of cover them up and work them out on your own. You haven't brought them up in community because, because maybe you have a few times, but then now you're back at it and you just don't want to be embarrassed. And maybe the Lord's confronting you on these. And this is my plea for you. Don't run from God. Run to him. Like don't find yourself kind of backing away. Like, as you hear the sermon right now, as, you, as I say, the Holy Spirit confronts us in our sin. I can almost feel there's this repulsion that you back away from, from God in that moment. Like, man, I hope he doesn't go through a laundry list and say what, what mine is. The reason I say I know that is because I, I sense that tendency in myself. I want someone to move on. Like, when we begin to talk about the Spirit's work convicting us in order for us to find life, I know, I know it's easy for me to just get off that subject and... My prayer for you this morning is that you would not back away, but you'd lean into grace. Lean into grace this morning because God is faithful and he will heal. And that was my prayer this morning when I began this sermon, is that as we leave, that, that the sun would be a little brighter for us. And, and by that, what I mean is that that cloud that followed Peter would not follow us out of this room. So, so if, you, if you will, I'd like to pray for us.